Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is MJ. And I'm Liz. And we're your host of Sisters in Crime. Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode. For the season 2 finale, we'll be discussing Tim Hennis, the man who was tried three times for the same murder. Let's get started. Gary and Katie Eastburn married in 1975 and by 1985 were parents to three beautiful baby girls. Erin, who was five, Kara, who was three, and Jana, who was only 22 months old at this time. Gary was a captain in the Air Force, and Katie was a stay-at-home mom raising their three daughters in Fayetteville, North Carolina. At this time, Gary was out of state in Alabama training since he had received a job offer located in Germany. The family was to relocate soon, but unfortunately, they were not allowed to bring their family dog, Dixie. While Gary was training out of state, Katie was getting all of their affairs in order back home. Although they didn't want to, Katie knew she had to surrender Dixie. Katie put an ad out on the local newspaper for a loving home for Dixie. On May 7th, Tim Hennis responded to Katie's ad. Katie invited Tim over to her home, chatted with Tim about Dixie for a bit, and Tim walked out of the Eastburn home with a new dog. Sis, um, could you please tell the listeners a bit more about Tim Hennis? Of course. Timothy also known as Tim Hennis, was born on February 24, 1958 in Rochester, Minnesota. Tim joined the U.S. Army in the 1980s. He married his then-girlfriend Angela, and the couple welcomed a baby girl in 1985. So at the time he was getting Dixie, he had a wife and daughter waiting at home. A few days later, on May 11th, Gary called his home expecting Katie to answer. They had a scheduled call every Saturday. Why was this a scheduled call? Well, since Gary was in training, he didn't have much time to talk to Katie. So they arranged a set time that Gary would call Katie and that would guarantee that they would sit down and talk without any interruptions. Oddly enough, Katie did not answer Gary's call. Gary was a bit confused about this since this was the first time Katie had missed this call, but he does know that they have three young daughters at home, so he figured Katie was probably running around with them and they just didn't hear the phone ring. Okay, pause. At this point, the last thing we know about Katie is that she welcomed this stranger called Tim into her home to discuss Dixie the dog. And then uh, we know that Tim walked out with Dixie out of the suburban home. And that's the last time we, we hear about Katie, right? As of now, yes. A day later, on May 12th, a neighbor of the Eastburns noticed that their driveway had a couple days worth of newspapers just sitting there. She began thinking about how she had not seen Katie or her daughters the last couple of days either, which was strange considering the three girls usually would be out on the lawn enjoying the nice summer weather. She expressed these concerns to her husband, who also found this strange. The neighbor decided to go and check on the family and see if they were okay. As he approached the door, he could hear panicked screams and cries. He tried opening a window to break in, but was unable to, so he hurried home and called over the Eastburn babysitter, Julie. 
Julie rushed to the Eastburn home and after looking through the windows, she could see baby Jenna in her crib with her arms out crying. Julie desperately tried to find a way inside the home, but the neighbors suggested they wait for the police to arrive. Officer Tolman arrived to the Eastburn home, forced open a window, and entered the home. Tolman soon discovered the bodies of Katie and Aaron Eastburn in the master bedroom and the body of Kara in her bedroom. Officer Tolman found baby Jana dehydrated and on the brink of death, but miraculously still alive. He picked her up and walked her out to Julie as he called for backup. Investigators arrived at the Eastburn home and began searching for clues and evidence. Meanwhile, Gary was called and asked to return to North Carolina. In the home, investigators found footprints, fingerprints, hair, as well as a pubic hair on the couch cushion. Investigators performed a luminal test in the master bedroom, revealing blood splatter everywhere that had been cleaned up post-murder by the culprit. Gary came home and investigators asked him to report any missing items in the home that could maybe point them in the right direction. Gary noticed that an envelope containing cash was missing, as well as Katie's ATM card and a little paper where the pin of the ATM was written. With that information, officers checked Katie's bank records where they found that her card was used to withdraw a total of $300 spending two transactions a day after investigators believed the Eastburns were murdered. So this will mean someone other than Katie used that card, right? Yes. What day are they saying is the official day that they were murdered? Investigators think that it was either May 9th, very late into the night, or May 10th in the early hours. When did this Tim guy uh, go to pick up the dog? Well, he went, he went May 7th, so this was like two days before. As the investigation is happening, a man named Patrick Cohn approaches investigators outside the Eastburn home and says that on May 10th, around 3.30 a.m., he saw a man walking down the Eastburn driveway carrying a trash bag. He described this man as a 6'4 white man with blonde hair, wearing a white tee, blue jeans, and a members-only jacket. The man greeted Patrick, got into his white Chevette, and drove off. Police drew a sketch of the man Patrick described, and when they showed the sketch to Julie, she claims that he resembled Tim, the man who adopted Dixie. Police made a public announcement broadcasted on the news for the person who took Dixie home to visit the police station for a few words. The sketch was shown on TV, and to her surprise, Angela noticed the uncanny resemblance to Tim. She urged Tim to visit the police station, and so he did. Tim drove his white Chevette to- Wait a minute. Tim drives a Chevette? A white Chevette, yes. Didn't Patrick see that same exact car outside the Eastburn home? Yes, he did. So it's no surprise why the officers were shocked when the man in the sketch walked right into the police department. They began to question Tim, who did not request a lawyer, about his whereabouts on May 9th. Tim claims he drove his wife and daughter to his in-law's house and drove back to his house, stopping only to fill up his gas tank. His wife was spending the night at her parents' house, so Tim was home alone for the night. He claims nothing eventful happened. Officers requested a hair, blood, and semen sample from Tim, who was more than okay with providing that to them. Guessing they needed the semen sample, maybe because they found semen on the girls or Katie? So they wanted the semen sample because it turned out that Katie had been raped, and they requested a, like a rape kit for her. Um, so that's why they... Um, requested the semen sample. So was his semen tested against the semen found in Katie? Um, no, because this was still in the 80s um, and DNA testing was still in its early stages. 
Um, investigators did know that with time, science would progress and that they'd be able to eventually run the test, so that's why they collected the samples. After collecting his samples, Tim was allowed to go home, but only a few hours later, investigators showed up on Tim's doorstep with an arrest warrant. Prosecutors offered Tim a plea bargain, two counts of second-degree murder, which would probably get him two consecutive life sentences, but Tim declined. He wanted a trial. And now a quick word from today's sponsor. About a year after the murders in the summer of 1986, Tim's trial began. Prosecutors argued that on May 7th, when Tim met Katie for the first time in her home to pick up Dixie, he found Katie attractive. Tim knew that Gary was in the military and out of town at the time, which made it easier for Tim to make a move. This didn't happen that day, though. The prosecution claims that on May 9th, after dropping off his wife and daughter at his in-laws, Tim drove to the Eastburn home. Prosecutors claim that it was then that Tim attempted to initiate a romantic relationship, aka an affair, with Katie, but she declined. Out of pure anger and rage, Tim took matters into his own hands and raped Katie. After raping her, he knew he couldn't just leave the home, so he killed Katie and his two eldest daughters to avoid leaving any witnesses. After briefly cleaning the scene, Tim collected all the evidence he left behind in a trash bag and walked out of the Eastburn house at around 3.30. The prosecution called Patrick Cohn to the stand, who again under oath claimed that Tim Hennis was the man he saw that morning in the Eastburn driveway. Prosecutors also called a witness to the stand, whose name I was not able to find in any of the research, that claimed that Tim was the man she saw at the ATM at the same time Katie's bank statement showed she was withdrawing money. To close their argument, the prosecutors showed the jury pictures after pictures of the gruesome crime scene. The pictures went on for about five minutes. In the end, the jury deliberated for about 10 hours and found Tim Hennis guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and one count of rape. On July 8th, the jury decided on his punishment, the death penalty. And we all know that death row inmates don't immediately get sent to the chair following their trial, so Tim Hennis was sent to the Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina in the meantime. While Tim was sitting in prison, he got a letter in the mail. Sis, can you please read the letter to the listeners? The letter reads, quote, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X, end quote. I mean, do we know that this really happened, that he received this letter, or this is just something Tim said he got? Um, no, like, he actually got this letter. Oh my God, then it, it didn't, it wasn't him then. Well, I feel like, it kind of seems fabricated because who the hell is Mr. X? Like, that's such a vague... At the same time, like, if it is somebody who sent it, they're not going to put their real name. But if it is somebody, like, let's say you went to prison for something that I did, I'm not going to send you a letter and say, hey, thanks for taking my, you know, thanks for taking the blame for me, you know. Like, I'm just going to walk away and pretend like that never happened. Well, that's you, but not, not all of us are the same. Well, again, if this letter was the case... Considering what happens next, why didn't he do it again? You know, why didn't he step forward? Like, you'll see what happens. I just don't think that this later... I just don't think that somebody who actually did this wrote this letter. 
1988, two years after his conviction, Tim's defense team successfully appealed his conviction with the North Carolina Supreme Court, claiming that the amount of crime scene photos shown to the jury was unnecessary and enough to sway the jury into finding anyone guilty. Tim's retrial began in 1989. In this trial, Tim's defense claimed that Patrick, the man who claims to have seen Tim that morning, could have seen someone else, considering there was overcast at the time and it would have been hard to see anyone during that time of night. The defense also claimed that the woman claiming she saw Tim at the ATM had been lying, not only because she changed her story more than once, but also because her ATM transaction happened about five minutes after Katie's, so it wouldn't have made sense that she saw Tim that day at the ATM. A new witness was presented at this trial on behalf of the defense. A neighbor who claims that the person wearing a members-only jacket was a neighbor who jogged through the neighborhood every morning. Tim's jacket was tested for blood, but none of it was found. The defense also stated that the footprints, blood, and hair samples found at the scene did not match Tim either. After the three weeks of trial, the jury only deliberated for two days. The jury found Tim Hennis not guilty on all counts of murder and rape. After his acquittal, Tim re-enlisted in the U.S. Army, where he was promoted to Staff Sergeant. Through his years in the Army, he received much recognition and awards for his service. Eventually, in 1998, Tim, his wife, and his now two kids decided to relocate to Washington, where he continued his military duties. Six years later, in 2004, Tim finally retired from the Army. In 2005, 20 years after the murders, Captain Larry Trotter from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office, aka the same department that overlooks the Fayetteville area where the Eastburn family murders took place, decided to attend a seminar to discuss the advancements of science within the criminal justice field. At the seminar, the Eastburn's case was used as an example for the collection of DNA for future use. Officer Trotter remembered that Katie's semen swab had not been tested against the semen collected from Tim Hennis, so he sent the semen to the lab. In 2006, the lab finally completed the test and determined that the chances of this sample belonging to anyone other than Tim was nearly impossible. Officer Trotter presented this information to investigators who had worked on Tim's case 20 years ago, and they couldn't believe this new information. How could they go about retrying Tim now that they have this new evidence? Well, they can't. Fifth Amendment, double jeopardy. Or can they? Remember, Tim Hennis was in the military, and according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, military personnel who have been tried in civilian court can be court-martialed. What is that? Basically a court for people who have been in the military. Because of this, Lieutenant General John Vines, commanding officer at Fort Bragg, called the already retired Tim Hennis in 2006 to re-enlist just for him to be tried for the Eastburn murders. A year later, in August of 2007, the XVIII Airborne Corp ordered a trial for Tim on three counts of capital murder. Tim's third trial finally began in March of 2010, almost 25 years after the death of Katie, Aaron, and Kara. The prosecution arguments remained the same, with the exception that this time, they're claiming that Katie was raped and the proof was supported from the lab results. The defense claimed that Tim had consensual sex with Katie on account of being lonely since Gary had been away for so long. Did Tim ever say he had sex with Katie back in the beginning? No. So why is he claiming that he did now? Because now there's evidence that he did, but he'd rather say that he had consensual sex rather than rape like the prosecutor is stating. 
After just three hours of deliberation, Tim was found guilty on all counts on April 3rd, 2010. Two weeks later, on April 15, Tim was sentenced to death for the second time. With this sentence, the military decided to dishonorably discharge him. Tim is now 63 and is currently at, at the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he awaits his execution date. Since his conviction in 2010, Tim and his defense team have tried countless times to appeal his conviction to no avail. Thank you so much for tuning into season two. We really appreciate you all. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook to check out pictures related to this case. Until next time, bye! bye.